0: With 4.4 million visitors in 2018, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal is one of America's most visited national park sites, a linear treasure of 184.5 miles of history, heritage, and nature, balanced precariously on the edge of the Potomac River as it curves from Georgetown in the District of Columbia to the foothills of the Alleghenies in Cumberland, Maryland. Today's guest, Heidi Gladfelter Schlag, is a preservation and heritage communications professional who works with the award winning Friends Group organized to help support, advocate, and fundraise on behalf of this national treasure. The CNO Canal Trust's innovative and entrepreneurial approach to its work is changing the way visitors interact with the canal and its history. So keep your head down as we pass below the low bridges and keep a clear eye for the next lock. We're headed to the CNO Canal.
1: From Preservation Maryland Studios in the Historic Podcast District
0: of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Heidi glatfelter Schleg is the Director of Marketing and Communications for the Sino Canal Trust, the fundraising partner for the Sino Canal National Historical Park. She spent 20 years in nonprofit communications, with the last 10 focused on using data-driven strategies to engage audiences and raise money in support of history and heritage organizations. Using both traditional and new media, she's substantially grown the trust profile in the communities lining the 184-mile-long park and has been a key player in the organization's quest to innovate new solutions for national park friends groups. This goal has already been realized by the Trust's award winning programs, the CNO Canal Explorer mobile app, and the Canal Quarters Lockhouse program. Along with her work at the Trust, Heidi freelances for clients through her business, Marketing Early America. Much of her professional work is centered on bringing multiple organizations together through partnerships, where she advocates for resource sharing knowledge exchange, and collaborative promotional efforts. Her interest in history, heritage tourism, and preservation has led her to volunteer with like-minded organizations in and around her hometown of Frederick, Maryland. So, uh, Heidi, it is a, a, a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. We're excited to talk with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background on you and, and what got you interested in, in history and heritage and perhaps your first job in the field.
1: Sure. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, as far as my background, when I was a high school student, history was not really on my radar screen at all. Um, my parents really put an emphasis on history during family vacations and that type of thing, but it just wasn't something that I found at all compelling. And so I ended up majoring in communications when I went to college. Um, which you know, really sort of fit my interests and, and skill set. I was introduced to the nonprofit world through two different internships that I had while I was in college, uh, both in the performing arts and one with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And when I graduated, the Baltimore Symphony hired me into a marketing and communications role, which was really where I... Um, Got my first real professional look at the marketing world. You know, we were having to get what we what we said butts and seats. Um, you know, getting folks into the concert hall, and I really learned a lot about marketing there. I went back to graduate school and picked up a degree in communications management. And about the time I was writing my thesis. This uh, love of history kicked in that I think had just been laying dormant from my childhood, and so I was sort of left at a crossroads. I knew that going back to college for a degree in history wasn't financially feasible at that point, so I decided to marry um, my my education and my background in communications and marketing with this love of history, and I um, created my consulting company, Market Early America. So that was sort of my uh, my um first steps into the history world
0: and your your company still exists to this day, so you still also in addition to your work with CNO canal trust are also doing work with market early america
1: I am um, right it's basically just open legally at this point. I'm not doing a whole lot of uh, business through it, but i in, in the past, actually, was consulting full time for a while, and um, definitely wanted to keep it open. I'm always, you know, eager. If, if anybody listening has a cool project that they'd like me to to talk about, I'm happy to to consider such a thing.
0: Well, there are a lot of people listening uh, who are interested in those sorts of things, so you're you're definitely opening yourself up um, <laughs> to some emails, and that's probably a good thing. I guess it, mention it now. If people do want to get in touch with you, uh, how do they reach you? Since you just mentioned that,
1: um, well. They can get me on my um, – either way, they can either email me at the trust, which is uh, schlag, S-C-H-L-A-G, at canaltrust.org, or um, they can get me on my, um, my personal site. My website is com, and my email is schlag at gmail.com.
0: So there's a lot of options there. So we've talked a little bit about the Sino Canal. Um, and in the interest of full disclosure, it was uh the first uh site I worked at during college as a park ranger um, yeah I did
1: know that yeah
0: i worked um uh in Williamsport about halfway um in the in the park but for those people listening across the country who perhaps aren 't familiar with the c n o canal someone who 's never visited um paint us a, a little a little picture here with words and uh and tell us how would you explain it what is it what would they what would they find?
1: Well, uh, the CNO Canal is a national historical park. Uh, it's a unit of the National Park Service and managed by the National Park Service. Um, so that's sort of the first key. I think a lot of people do not realize that um, the CNO Canal is their neighborhood park. In a lot of cases, it's right outside their their you know in their backyard. They walk their dogs on it. They go running on it, and they don't realize that they're as- actually in a national park. Um, it is 184.5 miles long, so very long and very skinny, and runs along the length of the Potomac. It begins in Georgetown and runs all the way to Cumberland, Maryland. So, um, it's a really interesting dynamic that it's running through a very urban um, urban area, and then a suburban area, and then it becomes very rural the farther west you get. So, um, there's lots of different factors that... Play into each of those scenarios that go into the management of the canal, uh, folks that are visiting um, you know you've got beautiful views of the river almost the whole way there is a tow path that the mules actually used to walk on while they towed the canal boats up and down the canal. Um, that still exists and is very popular for hiking and biking and um, Folks can visit what the Park Service is calling three different interpretive centers. So you've got Great Falls on the eastern end, which has a historic tavern. There's a um, the Charles Mercer Canal boat is there, and people can take a canal boat ride. That's been closed for a couple summers, but I believe it's opening back up this summer. In the Central Park in Williamsport, we have the Kushwa Basin, and that's the site of the newly rehabilitated Kanaka Aqueduct, which is a really exciting project that the Park Service just completed where they watered one of the old aqueducts. And it's one of only a few places in the world that people can actually ride a canal boat across a watered aqueduct. So that's a very interesting place to visit. And then all the way out in Cumberland is the last interpretive center, and that is um, the terminus of the CNO Canal. The canal never got built farther than that because of competition from the railroads. Um, but they have, you know a museum there and some great interpretive exhibits.
0: And so really, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, people joke that, you know, Maryland is America in miniature and and the Sino Canal sort of follows that as well and and follows the history of transportation and the move west and all these different themes. And obviously it's a big environmental um, preservation story because it's protecting um, the watershed flowing into um, the Potomac and then into the Chesapeake Bay. Um, So there's a lot of different things that you guys as the trust can do. The Trust is a relatively young organization, so what does it do and what's your role in that organization?
1: Sure. So, the trust is about, uh, I think we're about 13 years old at this point, so we like to say that we're in our teenage years. And we are the official nonprofit partner of the park. Um, You actually have to have a friend's agreement or a philanthropic agreement with the National Park Service to be able to raise money in the park. So, that is, is sort of the legalese around our position. And we have two main goals. We raise money for park priorities. So, um, we are right in the offices with the National Park Service, and we work very closely with the superintendent and the staff, so we know what, what they've got on their 12- um, you know, and 18-month plan, and they'll identify things that they might need funding help with, and then we raise the money for those priorities and basically hand them the money. Um, The two that are our main focuses right now are Towpath Resurfacing. So, we are working on resurfacing about 80 of the worst miles of the towpath. So, that project has been going on for about two years. And then, we also are raising money for the Parks Canal Classrooms program, which is a neat program where they're bringing School children into the park and teaching them um, STEM lessons based on you know things that you find in the canal. So we raise money to support that program and to pay the um, teachers, um, the retired teachers who actually deliver those programs to the students. Our other role is that we run programs that support the park's mission and provide visitor services. So this is sort of. Um, taking over some things that the park just doesn't have the capacity to do that is you know a value added to the visitors so um, our canal quarters program we have a mobile app that allows people to help um, to navigate the park we also do park cleanups and um, we're the fiscal agent for the canal towns partnership these are nine canals towns that line the canal um, sort of on the western end of the park that depend on trail tourism for their economic development. So, that's sort of, in a nutshell, what we do. My role as the um, director of marketing and communications is that I work with the board and the senior leadership on determining the communications and marketing priorities and then implementing those.
0: And so let's talk a little bit about um, the Canal Quarters, which you mentioned in passing um, and is a program that has has you've attracted a lot of attention. And I think that there's a lot of interesting um, parallels for other organizations that are managing historic structures and, and how do you use structures in such a way that um, become a sustainable resource for the organization? So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is and and some of the challenges associated with it, some of the successes, and then maybe we can talk about you know other groups that are interested in doing it, what they should think about. Sure.
1: So for those who aren't familiar with the program, uh, canal quarters include seven lock houses that line the canal. So these are you know, small stone, stone houses that um, the lock keepers actually lived in back when the canal was an active canal. And after the park became a park, uh, these structures were basically sitting unused. Um, They were falling victim to the elements, to vandalism and neglect. Um, So, the trust, when it was founded in, I want to say 2007, was looking for some ways that they could um, start some programs that would be helpful to the park. And they came up with this uh, Canal Quarters program where they would creatively, re- creatively reuse these lock houses as an interpretive experience for guests. So what this means is that we have taken these lock houses, we've gone in and we've re- rehabbed them, we have uh, furnished them with antiques and have interpreted them with um, different Stories of the canal's history, and they are now open for guests to come spend up to three nights in a lockhouse. Uh, folks can just you know, go, go to our website and pick out their dates. It works like a hotel. You can sleep eight people in a lock house, and you get the whole place to yourself. So it's really um, a great way for people to do staycations. Uh, we've had family reunions. We've had weddings there. Um, you know, a very unique opportunity to go sleep in the woods and live life like a lock, lock keeper did.
0: And so, I mean, that it sounds like a fantastic program. I can imagine that there's a lot of challenges associated with it. Um, any big ones that come to mind that you would want others to know about or, or maybe like, uh, uh, somewhere where we could avoid your pitfalls if we were uh, trying to do something <laughs> like this ourselves?
1: Um, so we, ha- I'd say one of our biggest challenges is getting the word out. Uh, we sort of call this program the best kept secret in DC and the DC area, um, So We're constantly doing things like this. I appreciate you having me on to talk about this program, uh, trying to just let people know that this program exists, encouraging folks who have stayed in the past to tell their friends. A lot of our business comes from word of mouth. As a nonprofit, we have a very small marketing budget, so I'm not able to be doing print ads and television spots and all of the things that you associate with marketing. So, most of what we're doing is word of mouth. Uh, The other Challenge that we're starting to run into now that this program is 10 years old is the upkeep of the lock houses and of the furnishings is starting to challenge us more. We're uh, just having new roofs put on several of the lock houses over the winter, and then you know things just break like like they do in your house. The HVAC system stops working, or a pipe breaks, or you know there's a hole in the screen because an animal crawled through it. So we're constantly you know, having to go down there and, and keep these things in, in good repair so that folks can have a good experience.
0: And is there one employee responsible for this? Do you have staff dedicated to it? Is it sort of, everybody has a piece? How how do you manage it on the internal side?
1: Um, we So, we have one program staff person whose primary responsibility is to manage the program. And he came to us with a lot of um, handyman experience. So, he can go down there and fix a lot of these things that have broken without us having to call repair people in, which has been great. Um, but as far as the management of the program, it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck. The phone line rings to our office and whoever... Is around, picks it up, and will help whoever's calling us with questions. Um, we get calls after hours from guests who have locked themselves out or just have a question. So somebody's always having to monitor the um, after hours line. However, the biggest piece of manpower with this program are our volunteers. We call them the quartermasters, and they all live within two to three miles of their respective lockhouse, and they are the folks that are on the ground helping us out with guests. So if somebody does get locked out, it'll be a quartermaster who shows up to let them back in, Um, and then they'll go in between guests to make sure that the guests left the lock house, the way they found it. And they help us out with a lot of minor maintenance tasks and mowing and that type of thing. So I would say for anybody considering this program, you have to have a dedicated volunteer staff on the ground to to help you out.
0: Yeah. And I was going to ask like advice for other organizations that are thinking about doing this. Is that, do you think that's like number one, is that having a volunteer component to it?
1: Um, yeah, I would say that that is. Or, I mean, if the, the staff wants to manage it, they just need to think through that process. Because people who come to this program have the expectation that they're in a hotel or a and b and so they're expecting to have somebody on call 24-7. And we don't have an innkeeper you know, down there at, at the, the lock houses with them. So you have to think through that process and how you're going to help help these folks when, when they're reaching out for help. I'd say the other main challenge that people will want to think through, and it's something that we still struggle with, is getting people, getting the guests who come to stay to have sort of a, a stewardship concept and understand that this... Their stay in a lockhouse is actually helping us to steward these lockhouses into the future. It's not the same as staying in a hotel or Airbnb. and um, We need them to leave no trace, leave it better than they found it. Um, and so that is just a constant education process
0: for us with our guests. Right. And that's very, that's very different than your average B&B.
1: Exactly. Make the point um, that the, we do charge fees for people to stay in the canal quarters, and those fees go right back into the program. So they aren't. This isn't an earned revenue opportunity for the trust. This isn't how we're paying our salaries. All of the this revenue goes right back into the program, and then right back into the maintenance and the preservation of the lockhouses.
0: Right. Well, I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. Um, And when we come back, uh, talk a little bit about uh, maybe the mobile app and uh, what else is happening with the trust in the years ahead. And we'll be right back here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avelius, and Jones, Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women past and present or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about legendary abolitionists and suffragists Frederick Douglass and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, read by Shantae Daniels, Executive Director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area. Abolitionists
2: to Suffragists Frederick Douglass, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Women played an active role in advocating for an end to slavery, but faced gender discrimination from their abolitionist peers, as well as the general public, who felt women were taking too vocal a public role. Many white abolitionist women began to draw comparisons between the nation's treatment of enslaved persons and the legal discrimination against women. Frustrated by the sexist treatment by fellow abolitionists, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott convened the first Women's rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York, in July 1848. The convention drew 300 men and women who collaborated to produce a Declaration of Sentiment that was modeled on the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration proclaimed, the equal rights of women and men and detail the many abuses facing American women. A key figure in drafting of the Declaration was nationally known abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who had been born into slavery on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Douglass was a critical ally for Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her bold decision to propose a resolution calling for women's enfranchisement. Frederick Douglass was the lone man In the attendants who supported the resolution. This important moment marked the beginning of a fragile, racially mixed coalition of men and women who sought expanded rights for all people, including the right to vote. In 1866, Douglas, Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony formed the American Equal Rights Association, AERA, to secure equal rights for all American citizens, especially the right of suffrage, irrespective of race, color, or sex. The more inclusive organizations had the support of African American activists like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. A published poet and author who had been born free in Baltimore in 1825 and campaigned around the country for temperance, abolition and women's rights, in an attempt to create social unity after the American Civil War. The AER members, like Harper, believed it was the right time to integrate gender, race, and class-based advocacy in a broad push for equality. With the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870 that granted the vote to black men but not to women an integrated and holistic approach for equality would never coalesce. In fact, many suffragists opposed the 15th Amendment, refusing to accept that black men would have the right to vote before white women. The unification that Douglas and Harper sought would not happen, and racial tensions would echo throughout the remainder of the women's suffrage movement, and often dictated a separate course for white and black suffragists. As the segregated movement proceeded, Watkins Harper would found the American Women's Suffrage Association and served as vice president of the National Association of Colored Women, among many other civic and literary achievements. Watkins Harper died nine years before the passage of the 19th Amendment. Her spiritual approach and her activism rings clear in her poem, Songs for the People. Songs for the People. Let me make the song for the people, songs for the old and young, songs to stir like a battle cry whenever they are sung. Not for the clashing of sabers, for the carnage nor for strife, but for the songs to thrill the heart of men with more abundant life. Let me make the song for the weary amid life's fever and fret till hearts shall relax their tension and care brows forget. Let me sing for little children before their footsteps stray sweet anthems of love and duty to afloat over life's highway. I would sing for the poor and aged when shadows dim their sight of the bright and restful mansions where there shall be no night. Our world so worn and weary needs music pure and strong to hush the jangle and discords of sorrow, pain, and wrong. Music to soothe its sorrow till war and crime shall cease and the hearts of men grown tender, girdle, the world with peace.
0: This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve PreserveCast. Uh, and today we're talking about all things on the CNO Canal and the CNO Canal Trust with uh, Heidi Gladfelter-Schlag. And excited to talk about what we have so far and also interested in, you've mentioned it before, your mobile app. And like, you know, I suppose five, ten years ago, this was all the rage. Every organization felt like they needed one. Um, you're an organization that still um, actively engages with one and is, has kept with it and has, you know, launched new versions of it. Tell us a little bit about it and the, the value to the trust of having this uh, digital component.
1: Sure, so this um, project was actually underway when I was hired. I, I came on board in 2014. And the park had asked the trust to develop a robust plan your visit section of our website. Uh, the park is challenged both in staff, they um, continue to lose federal budget appropriations, and therefore they continue to lose staff. Um, Also, as a federal agency, they are not able to promote for-profit businesses. So, this means that the hotels and the restaurants and the bike shops that are in the canal towns, that park visitors could very likely want to visit, the Park Service isn't able to tell visitors that they are there, and the trust can. So, that was sort of the impetus Behind us, starting this program, and it began as a website, a plan your visit web portal, essentially, and then um, the natural progression was to turn it into a mobile app. So what it looks like is about 600 points of interest along the canal. Because remember, it's 185 miles long, Um, so most people aren't familiar with the the entire length of the park. So we have broken down historic sites, um like your, your Paw Paw tunnel, your aqueducts, your lock houses, and then we also have included amenities. So parking lots, water pumps, bathrooms, um, picnic tables. All of that is on this um in this app and it's mapped and it's searchable. So people can go in and say, I want to see all of the aqueducts and it will pop up all of the aqueducts and show them all to you on the map. Uh, We also provide mileage between points and uh, directions, whether a point is upstream or downstream from where you're standing in the park. So, that is how it exists currently, and we have a grant right now from the fine folks at the Maryland Heritage Areas Authority who paid for the first round of this grant also. And we are adding now the for-profit businesses so the hotels, the restaurants, the bike shops. More interpretive content, and then also an itinerary builder, so when this version launches, people will actually be able to add various points of interest to their itinerary, save it, and then be able to pull that up when they're actually in the park to help them navigate uh, through through the park so we're really excited about that
0: and 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 I guess the question here is. What's the use like? Um, how many people are tapping into this, and um, do you feel like you're getting a good bang for your buck?
1: Well, it was ne- it was never designed as a way to. I mean, we're never going to make back the money that we well, spent right, on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't really the point. Uh, we've had four thousand downloads in okay. about the eighteen eighteen months that it's been live, which has been. Great, and we we do make a little revenue from that because it's 99 cents a download. But where we've really um, experienced great growth is having all of these points of interest on our website has really increased our search engine optimization. So anybody who's out there searching for any feature on the canal is basically hitting our website. We're the number one Google listing. For the majority of the features of the canal at this point, so that's just been driving tremendous traffic to our website over the past two years that the app and the website uh, plan your visit section have been live. our web pra- traffic has increased by thirty to fifty percent year over year and so my goal has been to take all of these eyeballs who are hitting our website looking for trip planning content and introducing them to what the trust does. Our theme has always been love the park, help the trust. So, you know, you love this park, you need to Some money to the trust because we're helping to preserve this park that you love. So, I am in the process of adding a lot of content to the website. So, if somebody lands on a page, say, about a lock house, they learn about our canal quarters program, or they land on a page about the aqueduct and we tell them about the park cleanup that we did last year. So, I'm trying to sort of basically use it as an education tool and a way to grow the profile of the trust and hopefully grow uh, the philanthropic support of the trust at the same time.
0: So speaking of the trust, um, what's next? I mean, it sounds like you have your hands full, so there's (laughs) there's a lot. I mean, and that's always the tough thing with nonprofits, right? Where it's like, oh, you've done all these great things. Okay, now what are you doing? Um, But, you know, do you have any fun plans or anything um, primed for the future?
1: So we... um We are nearing a million dollars. Our budget this year is eight hundred and ninety thousand, and we're hoping to get to a million dollar budget in the next year or two, which is a pretty major milestone for a growing nonprofit. So we're excited about that. That means more philanthropic support for us, and then. Uh, more money that we can turn over to the park. Uh, we also have a brand new superintendent, Tina Capetta from Fort McHenry and Hampton and Baltimore, has just joined the CNO Canal as their new superintendent. So we're getting, um, getting we're very excited to get to know her and learn what her priorities are, and you know start to work with her on um, helping the park. Uh, We also have a new headquarters opening up. And when I say we, I mean the park, (laughs) but they're generously letting us come come along for the ride. Um, So, they're opening a new headquarters in Williamsport in 2021, so we'll be relocating with them. And the park has a 50th anniversary in 2021, so we're really focused on how we can um, just grow our impact with all of these new eyeballs that will be focused on the park during the anniversary year.
0: And if people want to get engaged with the trust and want to learn more about it, um, where can they find you?
1: We are online at www.canaltrust.org. If they want to download the app, they can go to either their um, Google or Apple Store and just search for CNO Canal Explorer, and the app will pop up. And we're also on social media, so um, probably the best place to find us is come to our website, and then we'll direct you to those social media sites from our website.
0: So, um, for someone who works in history, for someone who loves history, um, the most difficult question, probably for today, I hope. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite historic site or place?
1: Yep. So I my answer on this one about three times um, and so I think <laughs> I'm going to go with Montpelier down in um, Virginia, the home okay. of Jameson Valley Madison, because it is where I really fell in love with historic preservation. so I um, I talked about how my my love of history bloomed a little late and I was touring all of the the, the sort of local homes. Just, just learning about museums and about history, and I stumbled upon Montpelier right when they were beginning to um, take the. I guess your, your your listeners probably know that the Montpelier was originally encased in a big structure that the, du, the Duponts built right. around it. So I stumbled upon Montpelier right when they were beginning that project of removing the Dupont structure and finding the Madison structure. And I went on a tour where, you know, they were telling me about the ghosts of the mantles and the door frames and just the whole process they were going through to determine what was DuPont, what was Madison, and how they were restoring this house uh, back to the Madison era. And it just blew my mind. <laughs> and so that was sort of, you know, the clincher for me to um start focusing more on on historic preservation in addition to my my interest in history museums. So
0: well, it's a fa- fantastic example and a, and a reminder that we should get somebody from Montpelier on PreserveCast to talk about that, that project. <laughs> um, thank you for all the good work that you're doing out there and for spending a little time with us today. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, seeing where the trust heads next and marking that million dollar milestone, hopefully very soon. Yep, yep. Thanks so much, Nick. I appreciate it. All right, thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support. And remember to keep preserving.
0: I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your Preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it.